Today on the podcast, we're talking about re-energizing the workforce. Now, there's no doubt that the last 12 months has taken its toll on our people. But as we begin to remobilize and adapt to different ways of working, culture remains a crucial part of re-energizing people. And who better to talk about culture than the author of Culture Hacks and Culture Fix himself, Colin D. Ellis. Colin has more than 20 years experience building and leading teams in the public and private sectors and helping people to be their best selves and bring that to work each day. So today I give him a call to talk about what he's noticing in this space. Do it live! Do it live! I'll write it and we'll do it live! 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, liftoff! Hi everyone and welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. My name's Shane Hatton. I'm a speaker, author and mentor from Melbourne, Australia and I'm passionate about all things leadership and communication. I realized recently that I know some really clever people in my network and I thought it would be a fun idea to be able to take some of their cleverness and share it with the rest of the world. Now through the wonders of technology, I'm broadcasting my phone calls with clever people just for you. And really the premise is quite simple. I just want to be able to ask great questions of talented people to help us all become more effective leaders. Joining me on the phone is Colin Ellis. Colin is known for delivering speeches and programs all around the world that inspire and motivate individuals to become role models for others and to provide organizations with the skills to build cultures of success. Whether it's the way that projects are delivered, how teams work together, or how to change the DNA of an organization, Colin has this unique blend of energy, humor, and practical information to make that change easy. Colin Ellis, welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. Thank you, Shane. Immediately imposter syndrome. Clever people. My dad's probably like, you got three O-levels. There's nothing clever about this guy. <laughs> Someone once said to me, they go, okay, I love phone calls with clever people, but when are you going to do phone calls with everybody else? Because like, I would really love to come on the show. <laughs> yeah, put me on that list. <laughs> <laughs> we caught up last week and I was so excited just coming into this topic today of what we're going to talk about, but it's always nice to kind of give people a chance to get to know you a little bit better. So kind of the three fast facts I ask is where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now? I was born in Western Hospital. Western is a suburb of Liverpool. It's east of Liverpool. It's about eight miles away. And I grew up in a little village called Rain Hill. That's where I was born. And my first job uh, was actually working uh, for a, a retailer called Argos in the UK. And you know, kind of what I remember most about it is firstly putting a box of dishware on a conveyor belt and then see it roll down to the bottom and flop off the end and smash, knowing that would come out of my wages. And secondly, I had a brown uniform. Like, who has a brown uniform that we had to wear? Like a brown V-neck sweater <laughs> and a brown clip-on tie, which I still have in therapy for, clip-on tie. Yeah, that was my first job. And I did that from like age 15 to 17, believe it or not. <laughs> well, I mean, going from the brown tie, brown v neck uh, on a conveyor belt to what do you do now uh, is it much different are you still kind of are you still rocking a, a brown v-neck i'm still seeing things crash to the floor and wondering how that happened uh <laughs> i don't wear any clip-on ties anymore uh yeah i, I get you know, I, well pre-covid i got got up in front of loads of people and talked and hopefully kind of inspired them to make a bit of a difference 
uh, uh, during COVID, I did that virtually. But I, but I run programs, Shane. I run programs to help people do stuff themselves. And I think, you know, there still aren't enough of those kind of programs. I think people are still looking for solutions uh, rather than can you help us to do it ourselves. So, yeah, that's what I do. You're kind of like teaching people to fish rather than giving them a fish, right? Yeah, I, it, it, you know, and it's something that yeah, as, as, a, as an employee myself for 30 years, I wanted, I always wanted people to come in and just like show us how to do it so that we become self-sufficient. I Often I thought that personal development programs were sold as kind of, we'll give you, you know, a day of motivation and then we'll leave with all of the IP. Uh, whereas what I wanted uh, often as a manager and, and as an employee was a framework to be able to do stuff myself. So yeah, so I like to teach people, particularly in the culture, well, and project management, I suppose, teach people how to do this stuff themselves. And while it's great, they may they may, may feel inspired and motivated during the, the sessions that I run, they still got to go away and go, right, now I know how I can do this myself. You know, I often say a measure of how successful a program is, is, uh, you know, how, how much do we need to bring somebody back? And if it's been good, then shouldn't really need to bring them back. If that's not the kind of desire for every kind of trainer or coach or, or speaker is like, how do we actually embed this? How do we make sure that when I leave, it's not just that exciting moment of insight and actually become something that's deeply embedded into the into the organization. And you do, uh, you mentioned it kind of briefly, but culture is a big piece of your work. Project management is a big piece of your work. I, I know culture is a big piece of it because, you know, when I talk to people out and about and they go, so what do you do? And, and I, you know, elements of what I do is I say, you know, I talk about communication. I also do culture. And they're like, oh, culture. Um, do you know Colin Ellis? <laughs> and I go, I do. So I that's do. how I know that you do you do culture work. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's, it's a weird thing, Shane. I, when I, I, you know, I guess my life changed around about when I was 27. I was given a, I was asked to do a project management job. And there was a recognition. I was working for a, a newspaper company selling advertising space. There was a recognition I was really good at building teams. That was my thing. I just, well, I don't know how, but I, I was just good at building teams. And so I always had a bit of a, a process, I suppose you would call it, for building teams. I knew that you had to do certain things in certain ways in order to get this level of buy-in and this level of collaboration. And, and, and I just did that in a project management world for the best part of 10 years. And so I became known for kind of not only being able to deliver great projects, but also building great teams. And so when I went to work for myself, initially, because I was coming from the project management space, people were like, oh, he, you know, he's really good at project delivery. The, it was the culture bit that was, I guess, my passion. Every time I spoke to someone at a networking event, it doesn't matter where I was, they were like, oh, how do you build teams? And I would lay out all of this stuff. And they were like, well, who taught you to do that? I'm like, well, I'm mostly self-taught with a few nuggets of inspiration here and there. And um, and so I think most people wrestle, and you'll find this yourself, most people wrestle with culture. They'll, they'll tell themselves it's too hard to change without really ever figuring out what the component parts of it and then picking a place to start, you know? Yeah. And so the culture space that you're in, I feel like, is in some ways it's a bit of a minefield when you talk about culture. If you post about culture on LinkedIn, you're almost guaranteed to be crucified, what I would say crucified by culture crusaders because there are people who are out there who have this very diverse perspective about what culture is, what culture is not, you know, and how have you kind of approached the the culture conversation? How do you kind of dive into it? Where's your space within that? Well, I think I'm, I'm fairly blunt about the challenges that, that people face in the cultures, Shane, and I think in a way that's garnered me 
kind of a, a little bit of a following where people like finally someone's actually saying it how it is. I often think that the, the biggest issue with culture is the people that talk about it are too far away from the people who are living it day to day. You know, and I joke with leadership teams all of the time and like, you know, you don't own the culture, but you have the power to destroy it. I was like, you know, it's really disempowering for some leadership teams knowing that actually it only takes one thing that they say in a meeting to really destroy a culture. And so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of honest about it, you know, and I, and I want people to realize that they have, doesn't matter where they are within an organization structure, is they have a responsibility to do their bit to, to kind of keep the culture vibrant. So I think having worked for 30 years, not that I don't work now, like, you know, I'm just on a beach all the time now, but, but having <laughs> been at the coalface of culture and, you know, having done the good and the bad myself, you know, I think I'm pretty well placed to talk about some of the issues. You know, we've seen a lot of stuff in government here over the last three, four weeks in Australia. You know, well, I was a public servant for for eight years. And when people talk to me about that stuff, I'm like, yep, I've seen all of that. I have seen all of that. And but I've also seen the courage that people have had to to stand up to that and to make changes. So I guess I bring that real world perspective, I suppose. Yeah. What what do you think? I mean, we talk about culture and one of the challenges is trying to define it and exactly what it is. And I think your kind of space around recognizing that everyone has a responsibility in terms of building it. Um, but like we kind of know it's important, but why is it so important? Like what's the value that this is in, that this brings in an organization when culture's strong, when culture's healthy? Well, because w- without fear, what we want, Shane, is people to get up in the morning and not have that little knot in their stomach about going for work, which we've kind of all felt from time to time. Because as soon as you feel that knot, then you start in the day with almost a fixed mindset about work. When you take a fixed mindset to work, you can never be the best version of you. When you're not the best version of you, you're not productive, you're not engaged with what the organization is trying to deliver. And consequently, you don't work well with other people to produce an output. And from that output, we can gain an outcome. And that really is it at its simplest level, is that if people don't feel that sense of belonging, that sense of connection, that sense of safety, if they don't feel that, then they can never be the best of themselves and we can only ever produce our best work when we're, when we're being the best of ourselves you know I joke again or I, I make the point you can't tell someone to be positive you can't tell someone to be motivated you can't tell someone to be energized they've got to feel it and it's up to leaders to create the environment where people can feel it and then make sure that you know kind of people contribute to it on a daily basis so you know I would always say that culture is the sum of everyone's attitudes beliefs behaviors traditions and skills it's all of those things and yet people are often daunted by that and say oh well I don't know where to start with changing it it's just like pick one small micro experience that contributes the knot in your stomach and then pick the next one and then pick the next one until you get to the point where people are quite happy to they're never going to want to come to work that's never going to be the primary kind of thing that they want to do in their day they'd much rather <laughs> be doing their own thing but when they're kind of you know happy enough to come to work to do a job that's when you know you've got a good I'm glad you said that because there is this element of the environment um, that contributes to so the kind of culture. That, and over the last probably 12 or 13 months, the environment has really changed. And a lot of the conversation that people are having now about this, whatever you call it, hybrid working, work from home, work from the office, they're having lots of conversations about how this is going to change and how this is going to affect culture. So what are some of the things that you're observing? What are you noticing when you look around the, the kind of working world at the moment? What are some of the big challenges, the big problems that people are facing right now? Well, you know, the, the organizations that thrive last year, Shane, were the ones that as soon as the 
pandemic hit and people had to leave the office, they redefined their cultures immediately. They actually did the work, they put the effort in and said, okay, well, the way that we do things around here has to change. So they didn't make it about technology. What they did is said, okay, well, how do we redefine the sense of connection? Now we're not in the same space. Because all of a sudden, those kind of casual conversations that you had and water cool is a phrase that we use, but those casual conversations that we had in water coolers corridors, they were gone. And so those opportunities for inspiration, for motivation, for innovation, they all left. So they were deliberate about it. So, you know, this thing called hybrid, you know, and what, what we get every three, four, between every three and five years in the culture space is we get the latest management fad. And what leaders then do is talk about it. Like the last one was agile. We're going agile. We want to be more agile. We want to be more flexible. Hybrid will be the next one. We want a hybrid environment. We need to move to a hybrid working culture. You've got one. All organizations have got a hybrid culture. Hybrid culture just means you've got different practices and different people working in different ways. You've got that. But what they don't have right now is that sense of connectedness. They don't have that sense of energy because they never took the time to redefine their culture. They never took the time to sort of say, okay, well, for the next 12 months, as well as some of those practical things like who comes in the office and when, is, you know, what's the behavior that we're looking for to get us through the next 12 months? What What's the kind of collaboration, you know, kind of principle? How are we going to make innovation happen if we're not in the same space? But instead, what you get is the lazy approach to culture. Like, you can be in the, you can be in the office Monday to Wednesday. You can be... Like, that's just not the way world works. What we need is to, is to move yeah. to a working model where people are trusted to do the right thing and make the decision at the start of the week who needs to be where and when and what the organization needs to do is to make sure the environments are physically and emotionally safe so that no one's catching any germs from the workplace or or there's no one you know kind of shouting and bawling at people um but actually we just empower people to do the right things and then when they're not as productive as they should be then we hold them to account so you know there's there's a lot of work to do in expectation setting there's a lot of work to do to make sure values are upheld and there's a lot of work to do to make sure that we leverage technology to supplement the way that we as humans interact and i think you know when when organizations are actually deliberate about the that activity which takes time and costs money um but they, they're going to really set themselves up for success for the next 12 18 months do you think there's a sense of the last 12 months has been challenging to get into that intentional space because many people have just been living in the reactive space like just dealing with like mobilizing the workforce and going okay i've spent so much time just trying to get our technology working or getting people being able to work from home that I haven't even considered like the consequences of how that might impact our culture. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, even Google said that. So at the start of the year, it was at the start of this year or the end of last year, chief operating officer of Google said, oh, we're going to move to a more hybrid working environment. I'm like, really, Google? You're saying that? We're moving to a more hybrid environment, which they already have, but that's another podcast. And it's going to affect our culture. I was like, Wow. I'd seen Atlassian, Cisco, Apple, Facebook, all saying that what we're going to do is redefine the way that we do things to make sure that we're equally productive at home as we are kind of back in the office. Atlassian doubled down. In fact, Atlassian, Facebook definitely are building new offices, you know, because they, they doubled down. They said, no, 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 there's still a need for people to be in the same space. But what most organizations do is they focus on the transactional stuff. We're going to roll out Microsoft Teams, so that will sort out our collaboration. Uh, no, no, no. It, like, it, it will help, but it won't change the way that you collaborate. We're going to do Friday drinks every Friday virtually. Okay, cool. That'll work for the first month. Then what are you doing after that when people get bored? So we love to do, organizations love to do this transactional stuff, which is really well-meaning. 
But they forget about the glue. They forget about, okay, well, culturally, you know, when we look at behavior, collaboration, and how are we going to make sure all of those things are interwoven into some of the transactional stuff? Uh, because you're still going to get, like, Shane is going to be, like, 100% productive, even while he's at home, even while he's got kids there. Colin's just going to do stuff in his pajamas. He's not really going to have the right intention. He's going to use a bunch of excuses for not getting work done. How do you manage that dynamic? Because they've all got the same tools. We're all set up in exactly the same way. And they're the things that people forget. You know, and I definitely worked with a bunch of people right at the start of the pandemic who, who said, if we don't define, we don't redefine the culture, all of this other stuff will be useless. And of course, that's true. Unless you've got some collaboration rules, as I call them, around kind of how we use technology, when a camera's on, when a camera's off, when's it appropriate to use Teams? Most organizations went from back-to-back meetings in person to back-to-back Teams meetings rather than use it as that opportunity to look at some of the kind of daft practices that they had, Shane. So I think, you know, we very much focused on and continue to focus on some of those transactional things and we forget about the glue that that sticks there all together. I think about this distinction between like principles and practice what are the things that we get really um, you know, technical around, which is, okay, we're going to use teams. Let's go really hard on working out teams. Go, okay, what's the principle that sits below that? What are we actually trying to achieve? And it's going like, okay, so the water cooler conversation is, is a principle. It's at that way for us to be able to connect in a way that's not formal. And you go, well, that still exists in a hybrid environment. It still exists when you're online, but we need to be intentional about how do you create that? In the same way, the conversation I've been having with people lately is going, could you come and talk about hybrid teams or hybrid working? And I go, well, there's actually principles that are relevant to hybrid working, but they're the exact same principles that were relevant when we were in the office together. But like, what are those principles? And what are some of those things that we could be more intentional about that are shaping the culture of our organization, both online and in person, right? Yeah, exactly right. I I spoke to an organization uh, probably in April last year, and I'd done some culture work with them about six months prior. And they said, oh, we we need to redefine our culture. And, you know, I said, no, you don't. <laughs> like, just turned out a bunch of work. <laughs> I really needed it. I was like, you really don't need to redefine it. Exactly as you said, you take the principles. That, and they had principles, Shane, that said one of the one of the collaboration principles was we prefer face-to-face over email. I was like, so you've got to think about, okay, well, because they had a big email problem. I was like, so that principle just, all that means is you're going to do things by video call, but you're going to, you're going to still have that same intention about, about making sure that you don't overdo it. Another one of their principles was we don't tolerate brilliant jerks. That principle still applies when people are working from home. It's like what you can't have is someone just disconnecting themselves from the culture and say, right, I'm working from home, I'm doing my own thing. So you're right, is you have this layer of principles which kind of guides the way that people work. And then you've got the practices, which is the thing that people generally go to. They're like, we're using Teams for this, we're using Slack for that. It's not wrong, but what are the principles that guide the use of those practices or when we should employ them? Yeah, I love Netflix has this freedom and responsibility culture and that language. I know a lot of leaders that I've talked to, this they find this really valuable, which is you get high freedom, which is, you know, you don't work nine to five if that doesn't work for you. You get the freedom to be able to do that, but you also have to carry the responsibility of making sure you get your work done. So the moment you negate on responsibility, you lose elements of freedom. So that kind of that tension of balance between freedom and responsibility, I love. And that principle is the same. If you're working from home and you go, well, you know what, you want to work at seven o'clock 
o'clock at night because you've got kids or you've got to do this stuff. Are you getting your work done? Absolutely. There's high freedom there. Like the principle stays the same, but we have to redefine the practices along alongside those principles, right? Yeah, absolutely right. And 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 what I, I loved uh, what Patty McCord, who's former chief talent officer at Netflix, had to say about this. And she said, we want people to feel empowered as soon as they start work. Because most organizations do is they have a command and control approach and then they bitch and moan when people don't take responsibility for stuff. I'm like, you have to flip it. You have to flip it and sort of say, we're going to empower you to define the culture that you need to be successful. Then we're going to let you get on with it. And then what we'll do as a leadership team is we'll manage the outliers to the principles that you've set. And this is where you get this culture of empowerment and trust, because you always want trust to be assumed, not earned. If, you, if your hiring practices are any good, when I hire Shane, I've done enough work to know he's going to be great. And then I'm going to get him to kind of contribute to the culture to sort of say, here's one thing that I've noticed that we can change. I'm going to embrace that. I'm not going to be like, we don't want to change anything. We've been working this way for 50 years. <laughs> right. And and so exactly right. So what, what they say at Netflix is that, Here's the culture the staff have uh, defined. We're going to trust you now to do the work. And if there's just one person over here that doesn't put a shift in, it's pretty much a three-strike rule. So all these organizations, like we want a culture like Netflix, I'm like, cool. So if someone is unproductive and holding the culture back, you're okay to sack them, right? Well, we couldn't do that in our environment. I'm like, well, firstly, yes, you can. You just don't have the courage to do it or your HR process is broken. Or secondly, it, you know, kind of you're not using your probation process in the right way. And so I think, you know, if those organizations stop talking about it, you know, and, and have the courage to do something different, put the culture in the hands of the staff, and then as a leadership team, manage the outliers to that. Yeah, I'm loving this conversation. Make sure, okay, what are our principles? What are we working towards to create? What does that look like in practice? How can we be more intentional about the kind of culture that we're creating in this kind of middle season of whatever this looks like right now? Um, one of the things I've noticed that like, you know, what is it, 12, 13 months ago, we mobilized the entire workforce. Like we're, we're both in Melbourne and we saw what that looked like. Melbourne became, the CBD became a, a ghost town um, and for and stayed that way for a long time. And no one, in many ways, a lot of people I talked to, no one was ready for that. Like we weren't ready to kind of mobilize our workforce in that kind of speed and that kind of pace. And now we're about to go through a second remobilization. Like we're about to bring people back to the office or kind of discover what the next stage of this looks like. The first one took a huge, I think the word that, that comes to mind is a big energy hit. Like there was a lot of energy expended in able to do that. And now we're about to remobilize people without that energy. And so we we are essentially now not only needing to remobilize, but we need to re-energize a workforce at the same time. Like what's been some of your observations around that? Have you noticed that? Are you seeing that? What's what's kind of coming to mind for you? Well, I think there are some organ some organizations Goldman Sachs, the, the CEO Goldman Sachs basically came out and said we're not a working from home company we need people in the office reed hastings of netflix said pretty much the same and i think what that doesn't acknowledge is the fear that some people have of returning to the workplace uh but also the fact that some people have really enjoyed working from home now when i actually ask people what they've enjoyed most about working from home and actually there was a great survey um produced by Microsoft around about August last year. And the number one thing that people enjoyed most about working from home was the fact that they got to dress how they wanted. The second one was they got to spend more time with their kids and or pets, right? Um, and I know for certainly for me, Trout used, used to travel in a lot, Shane. You know, I was around my kid probably more than I have been in a long time, which was great, you know, for the first month. And then after that, I just wanted them back at school. They're teenagers, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> So I think that, you know, there's a level of comfort that people have. 
there's a level of fear. So organizations have to, to have to think about it. They have to put time and effort. They have to engage with staff. And, you know, so I've been encouraging certainly my clients to create a bit of a working party around kind of the cultural issues that you're likely to face. Yes, you should think about redefining it. If you haven't already, you should redefine your culture and you should talk about the behaviors and the, the collaboration principles and kind of those, you know, new innovation. What have we learned from COVID? What do we want to keep? What do we want to throw out? Um, but also, you know, make sure that it's not leaders back in the office first, staff every, staff second. You know, it sends it sends the wrong message. But ultimately, uh, productive work happens in the workplace when you do it well, Shane. Um, and so, when we talk about these kind of hybrid environments, something that you're talking about too, it's like how do we create a mix of environments so that people can be productive? on the work that they're working on at that moment in time. Some work, and the the research backs this up, some work is best done face-to-face. Some work is best done in small groups, co-located in an office environment. It absolutely is. So we have to make sure that those places are safe and clean and we, you know, kind of uh, commit to social distancing. Um, But for everything else, you know, we should be giving the staff the choice about where they actually work. And again, the tech companies have been doing it for years. Their staff will come into the office on Monday. They'll meet with their leaders and they'll say, okay, well, you know, what work do we need to do this week and where are we best placed to do it? And so I think be intentional about the return to work, but, but involve people in that discussion. Otherwise, you run the risk of just doing culture to people and not kind of building on the emotional capital that you have through last year. Because the only reason that people weren't working from home prior to COVID is old-fashioned behavior and old-fashioned thinking. You know, I was doing it back in 2001, so we've had mm. the technology for donkey's years. Um, so, you know, be intentional and involve staff in it is my recommendation. Yeah. And it's an interesting one that you touched on there because I think um, the technology supports us to be able to do this. But in many ways, when we mobilized people and, and went into this kind of remote working environment, there was a lot of people who said, this is just not going to work. And now they've realized that actually it can work. But now it, the kind of default response is to kind of almost go back to the way things were. Yeah. And, and again, if there's ever a time to break something and test something and work out a new way of doing something, now would be the best time to do that, right? Yeah, well, there's this incorrect assumption that people only ever feel motivated, energized, inspired when they're in an office. And often that's the thing that kills motivation because of the way organizations are set up. You know, I've long said that open plan is just a nightmare for, for most organization. It kills collaboration. You know, people have told them that it, you know, it's supposed to increase. It doesn't. You know, introverts always put headphones in or on and that blocks out culture, which is bad for the way that we get things done. So I think there was this misplaced assumption that that's what energized people what energizes people is being treated as an adult is actually mixing with your colleagues and the people that you know you have to collaborate with and then deciding as a group of people where you need to be in order to do this thing called work that's what energizes people and what energizes people is kind of you know productive time you know being given a priority rather than meetings it's about the organization not doing too much it's about doing fewer things really really well it's about senior managers uh, setting the example and the tone with regards to behavior when you see all of that stuff shane you're massively energized because you can see someone and you're like that's awesome i'm going to learn from that or it's so great to only have three things on my plate rather than 30 things you know, we hear all the time about change fatigue. Like, it's really simple. If someone's got change fatigue, you're doing too much. 
Like, it's not rocket science. It's like, how many things have you got on right now? Oh, well, we've got, you know, 50 things. It's too many. I already know for an organization of yours. Like, you, you look at Spotify. They do 10 to 15 major projects at any one time, and that's allowed to take up no more than 50% of productive time. Any organization could do that. Any organization. I was working with one last week. I was like, how many projects have you got on? They listed them. I'm like, there's no way you're doing them to any level of quality in the time that you specify. And so I think, you know, when, when, when we see senior leaders role modeling the behaviors, when we don't feel overwhelmed by work, when we feel we've had a say in the culture, and when our interactions with our colleagues are good and add to the quality of our days, Shane, that's what energizes us and that's what motivates us to be better. I was having a conversation with someone last year and they were saying that their engagement was at an all-time high right in the middle of the pandemic. And I said, what do you think it is that's kind of caused such strong engagement from your team? And they said, for the first time in a long time, our executive leaders have been forced to the front line of our workforce. And they were communicating like most of the time daily. They were in there. They were having conversations with their people on the front lines, their frontline workers, and they're getting feedback and they're, they're learning about what it looks like to be on the coalface of the organization. And I go, okay, so that's there's probably an insight there around, okay, what does it look like to connect what's happening at the top of the organization to what's happening on the ground level? And all those things you just mentioned about, you know, like what does this look like in practice? What does this look like to, you know, energize people? Well, you need to know the problems they're experiencing, what makes their stomach turn when they get out of bed every morning. And you're not getting that when they when you're sitting in this disconnect between the top and the bottom, right? Yeah, n- not seeing it at all. And I've long spoken to CEOs conferences and in my programs about humility uh visibility and vulnerability as like if you want to be that person that has a positive influence on people's lives because leadership is a choice right as a ceo or as a as a as a manager senior manager you're not automatically a leader it's a kind of term that you've created for yourself you know a leadership team doesn't really it's not a construct that exists unless everybody's role modeling what they expect of everybody else, just by being visible, just by demonstrating that a human being, just like everybody else, um, you know, and 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 just yeah. by saying sorry or recognizing that you're going through the same things of everyone else, these are the things that kind of create human connection, Shane. You know, I love the fact that we got this window into people's lives. I, you know, as an extrovert, I think it's really, really important. Extroverts tend to just put that stuff out there with people, people really asking for it. So we got to see everybody, <laughs> like everybody else showed us theirs at the, at the same time. And that's a good thing. And, you know, I had one CEO, I coached at the beginning of the pandemic. He's like, oh, I'm really nervous about being on video. I'm like, got to do it. I'm like, stop talking about it. You're the CEO. You're the head of the organization. It's something that you have to do. If you make a mistake, great. Just That just demonstrates that you're human. He started his video by saying, you know, encouraged him to say, listen, I'm really nervous. I'm not used to doing this kind of thing. I was like, that's cool. I was like, but after the third one, you'll get better at it. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And people want to see senior leaders. They want to know that they're going through the same experiences. You know, I encourage one leadership team to record the Zoom meeting and, you know, kind of make it public for people to see. I was like, that's how you open the doors, you know? And it's like, oh, I'm really nervous. I'm like, what are you really nervous about? As long as your behavior is good and you're not talking about anything sensitive, just stick it out there. He's like, what happens if dogs barking? I'm like, hey, dogs bark in other people's houses too. You're not unique. 
And so I think that visibility, that vulnerability, <laughs> and that humility really bridge that gap. And it's something that CEOs, you know, when, when they go back to the office, I said to CEOs, you, you've got to keep that open door policy so people can just come and talk to you at any time. So it's almost like they're seeing you as regularly as they did during the pandemic. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard stories, uh, a lot of great stories of, of senior leaders that have, you know, been presenting in their house and they've got children in the background and they've, you know, I don't know if you, yeah, I mean, it kind of went viral, the video of the person who's doing the interview on the BBC and the child kind of comes in and they're like, they're freaking out about it. Like the amount of times that that was the reality over the last 12 months for people. I've met pets, I've met children, I've met spouses. And at one point a duck, like I, there, I've met, <laughs> you know, a lot of people through this, right? But it just creates this human experience, which can totally can change the whole culture and within an organization. It's just those little, these are those stories, Shane, that keep us connected as a culture. Because what we'll do in a year's time, because people are like, oh, we should just write 2020 off. I'm like, no, we shouldn't. I was like, we should remember all of the good things that we did, all of the things that we overcame as a, as a culture, as a team, and as a human race. We should remember those little funny stories, like when someone's camera fell off you know i was in the middle of a facilitated session and i had a delivery guy at the front door everyone in, in the house had gone out for a walk because i was doing this this session and he just wouldn't quit with the doorbell and in the end i'd say i'm really sorry i have to go out and get this pot then he wanted a conversation I'm like dude you've been pressing the bell for like five minutes there's no way we're having a conversation and like i think it's all of those you know kind of micro experiences that really bond us and keep us together so people shouldn't forget what happened in 2020 Yes, there's some bad stuff, of course, and we were affected just like everybody else with some of the bad stuff. But these are the things that help us to grow. They're the things that make us stronger. And as a culture, they provide the foundation on, on which we should continue to learn, grow and develop uh, and become more vibrant as a result. When I first moved to Melbourne from Queensland, um, one of the things that I found really challenging to fit in in a new location is that you would connect with people and they would tell stories and you were never a part of that story. And it always felt like I was on the outer of that. And I think stories, when you're in the story, have this amazing ability to bond people and connect people and create this culture of, of belonging and inclusivity. And I, I love what you're saying there because like 2020 was full of stories, both good and bad, but both of those stories create this um, this sense of we were in that together. And that togetherness is that glue, right? It's that culture. It's that energy that brings people and keeps people together. Yeah, it's something that we that we all went through in the same way, but it affected us all differently, Shane. So, you know, even now what I've done with my culture workshops is what was all, you know, what, what was the good stuff that happened during the pandemic? Because we largely think of it as a bad experience. And I think, you know, it's really important that we collect those micro experiences because there's lots of learning in them. And, you know, what it really demonstrated is we could be deliberate about creating story where previously when we were in the office they just happened where i met you in the corridor like do you want to grab a coffee and then all of a sudden you would say something i'm like oh my god that's brilliant here's something i could do we were deliberate about those interactions and actually the organizations have got it right really kind of created an environment where different people spoke to different people at different times and so that you were casually even though it was kind of a created event you were casually bumping into people that you would never normally uh, have a conversation with and that's the kind of stuff that you really want to maintain moving forward um, so that even when you've got new people they've got their own opportunity to create new stories based on the kind of activity that you do as a culture. I'm loving this conversation the kind of journey that we've gone through is like we've 
We've got a workforce which has been mobilized and that affects our culture and it means we need to be intentional with it. But it doesn't necessarily mean our, our culture is completely transformed and changed. It just means that we need to adapt it to the new ways that we're working, right? It could be about, you know, the principles are the same, but the practices have to change and shift. And then in order to be able to know what needs to shift, we need to actually have conversations and connect the top to the bottom. So like at a practical level, someone who might be listening to this kind of mid to senior level leader, maybe even a senior um, executive within a business, they're saying, okay, we want to do some of this. We want to be a bit more intentional around redefining what our culture is and making sure that the practices align with that. And I want to make sure that I'm including people uh, at the coalface in this conversation. Like what are the practical things that people could be doing to close that gap to be able to connect people and kind of create the culture by design? Yeah, there's a couple of things. Um, you know, and I often use the, the metaphor of a, of a used car with regards to culture, because if you look after your used car, if you get it regularly serviced, if you just replace a little part every now and again when it's broken, you can have that same car, usually a Toyota Corolla. You can have that same car for like 20, 30 years. And it's because you're always adding to it. So there's this, you know, cultures don't change, they evolve. And you've got to do good stuff, which means removing something that's fundamentally broken every now and again, which which doesn't change the car. It's about an individual that's not doing the right thing in the right way. You know, organizations should never really need a full culture change program unless things are so broken that they really have no option. Mm. So, you know, I always encourage people to go on a cultural evolution journey. Yes, start with a redefinition exercise where you bring everybody in or the representatives of everybody. You know, I'm working with a big tech company in San Jose, 3,000 workers. We're doing a virtual event for 300 people. So it's kind of like, you know, 10% of the workforce, but those 10% represent everybody within that department because then everybody gets to say, and it's built on all of the good stuff that you do. I think often there's a tendency to throw everything out. It's like, okay, well, what's the good stuff that you do? You know, we want to leverage all of that. We want to make sure that we keep all of that. So you can start with that little redefinition of activity Actually, if you've already got a highly engaged culture, you should think about doing something different every month to keep people engaged. You should look at some of those practices that you have. And the things that I always uh, encourage organizations to look at is things like performance management practices, feedback, uh, procurement, you know, things that really kind of annoy people. And I was speaking to an organization just yesterday. You know, I have this construct called the Culture Club, which is just part of a cultural evolution. It's a Gen X thing for me, mainly to, you know, to sing Karma Chameleon. Um <laughs> But, you know, it, it's something every month where you can bring a group of people together to look at things that don't work very well and innovate and change them. And so when people get on that journey, they can see things changing every month. And that's that way to maintain that vibrant culture. For everybody else, you should start with a bit of a redefinition exercise, two days in person, three days virtually. That's, you know, as much as, as long as it takes, that gives you that definition from which you can then build and grow. But it's important that leaders understand that if they don't sponsor it, if they don't set the tone, if, they, if they're not role modeling what they expect of everybody else, then it's just another practical exercise that you go through that will end up in a drawer and you'll be blowing dust off it in 18 months going, oh yeah, this was good. Why didn't we do this? I love it. I think the whole conversation around culture being shared and bringing people into the conversation, you used a phrase a little bit earlier that I loved, which is culture is not something you do at people, um, which is is one of the, the kind of big pitfalls that you can fall into as a leadership team is to say, all right, we need to, you know, we need to make this a great place to work. We need to energize our staff. We want people to love working here. Let's be really intentional about our culture. All right, 
team, let's get together and let's go off site and let's plan. <laughs> let's design our culture and come back and share it with everyone and everyone will love it, right? Is this kind of something you see as one of the big pitfalls? Oh yeah, all the time. Love talking about this. We as a leadership team know exactly what you need. So we're going to go to a more expensive venue, talk about the same shit that we normally talk about. And then we're going to come back. We'll get a branding agency to draw up a load of things. We'll put it all over the wall and you'll live it. Okay, good, done. Oh my God. Like the, it's the biggest pitfall ever. And then what you ask is, it's like for the staff, it's like that Indiana Jones movie where they're all walking and dodging darts and falling into traps and having boulder. Because then people use that culture as a weapon. The leaders are like, we told you what the values were. You're not living the values. And people are like, you didn't involve me. These these are not my values. That's not a vision statement. It's just a rambling paragraph of nothingness. It has no connection to what I'm doing at all. (laughs) So I guess as we're kind of bringing the conversation to land a little bit, there's there's this kind of re-energizing moment that we're going through when it comes to the workforce and really culture is at the core of that, right? What do you see kind of culture's role in in making sure that your workforce is energized going into whatever the next season of, of life and work looks like? Well, I think people in culture departments and HR departments who, for too, if we're being honest here, for too long, culture always played second fiddle to kind of process, uh, business process. And largely that was forced on them because CEOs were like, we need some people practices, right? Which isn't, you know... But HR and people in culture, like, you know, if you if, if culture is in your job title, you should be an expert at culture. Like, that should, like, it's just like having a CFO who's like, I don't really know what I'm doing with spreadsheets and numbers. Like, if, if, if culture's in your job title, you should be an expert at it. So this is their opportunity to shine. This is their opportunity to step up to the plate and say, okay, we're going to be intentional about the, the work that we're doing around culture. What we're going to do is we're going to create a plan to involve as many people as possible we're going to switch our ears on as a leadership team we're going to make sure that we that we take on board different ideas we're going to learn from the positive stuff that happened during the pandemic we're going to look at the way that we kind of enforced some of those practices and say is that the right thing to do we're going to redefine the kind of organization that we need to be to get through the next 12 to 18 months and then we're going to put in a regular cycle of culture review and what we're going to do then is be really intentional about defining what it means to be vibrant and then supporting our people in the bid to stay in that kind of vibrant space. And so it's really a call to action for people and culture partners around the world to step up and and take the lead on being intentional around culture because staff will love you for it and you won't then be seen as this organization that kind of sits in the background and kind of tells you that the performance management process is too hard you'll you'll have the best team cultures and you'll be at the forefront of supporting people in their bid to do productive work incredible i I couldn't i couldn't agree with it or add anything to that i think it's a really nice kind of um call to arms for for a lot of people who are listening to this and and again colin you've got a, a bunch of resources that help people to be able to do this more effectively you've got culture hacks and culture fix a couple of great books that specifically talk to a lot of the culture conversation we've had today you've also got i think a couple of other books is project management uh, another book on project management as well yeah i've got the project book shane and you know one of the things that was missing for me uh when i was a, a kind of a senior manager was a place to hang out with people like me sharing ideas so i also founded the culture makers community which is culturemakers.community and also the pm tribe the pm tribe is a a place for project managers to improve and i think you know 
people like you, people like me, we're looking to share as many ideas that we have as, you know, to help people on the, on their own journeys as well. Yeah. And I, I'd encourage people to ch- check those out because I think some of the best environments that we can get in is, is ones where people speak the kind of common language around culture and they share their experience and their learning and you go, oh my gosh, that just opened up a new perspective to this. And I think that's just the real value of community. Um, you're an exceptional speaker. I've heard you speak a number of times and I, as someone that trains speakers, like you, you're an exceptional energetic, what you bring to a room, not just in terms of the content that you deliver, but just the energy and the excitement that you can bring into a room. So I definitely encourage people to reach out to you if they've got engagements around speaking and anything they want to do in terms of uh, culture within their organization. It's no surprise that your name comes up in conversation quite regularly when I talk to people about culture. So thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Shane, thank you so much, mate. So generous of you. Uh, great to be on. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week. 